Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist Marketeers 4DC. Welcome to The Echo Chamber. This is our political podcast, I suppose, although we're going to primarily be looking at the Republican side of this year's unusual presidential campaign. So we have two guests on the show who have worked on either a Republican presidential campaign or within an administration. They're going to talk about, again, this highly unusual rhetoric around this year's GOP nominee, who of course is Donald Trump. Um, We've never, of course, had a candidate talk about the election process, women, people of color, and many other groups publicly in the way that Donald Trump has. We'll talk about what this means for media coverage of the event, um, this election, but most importantly, what it means for the Republican Party as it looks, presumably, to come together again on November 9th after an incredibly divisive campaign that probably hurt the party no matter how the election goes. So first we'll have Tucker Bounds, who is now co-founder of Sidewire, which he'll talk about, but many of you might know him from his days as communications director at Facebook. And before that, he was on the communications team for Meg Whitman and uh, the McCain ticket in 2008. Welcome to the show, Tucker. Hi, Arthi. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Well, so let's. Um, so we're here to talk about election 2016 and all of the madness around that. Um, let's start. Just let's tell our listeners sort of what your background is around politics. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I started working in politics in college and then went back to Capitol Hill and uh, right out of college worked for a brief stint for a young congressman named Greg Walden, who is now uh, the chairman of the NRCC, the Elections Committee uh, in Congress. Um, so he's responsible for electing Republicans, re-electing Republicans uh, in the House. Uh, then I went to be uh, Gordon Smith's press secretary, um, did a stint on the Bush-Cheney campaign um, in the real successful re-election, re-election campaign then. Uh, after that, I went to go work uh, at the Republican National Committee as their Western spokesperson. Um, after that, I went to the McCain campaign, um, where I eventually led Rapid Response and was their national spokesperson in 2008. Um, came out here and helped run Meg Whitman's campaign for governor, former eBay CEO and currently the HPE CEO. Um, and then uh, after that campaign, which was uh, catastrophically the best financed uh, statewide campaign in the history of the United States uh, that was unsuccessful, um, but then went to Facebook afterwards and led their corporate communications team uh, for a couple of years before starting um, a startup uh, called Sidewire, which is an influencer community uh, that began around the presidential campaign elections, um, public chat platform where people can turn their chat discussions into media. Yeah, and actually, and I will tell our listeners, I actually downloaded it on the cab over here and was playing with it. And it's actually, it's a really cool um, app. I would highly recommend people um, actually try it out. We're really proud of it, and we're really proud of the conversations that are happening there every day. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you, you got a free plug for me just there, too. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you, Arthur. I appreciate it. So, all right, so, Tucker, you've seen a lot, but I think we can agree that uh, no one has seen anything like this presidential campaign. So from a communi- I would agree with that, yes. <laughs> So from a communications perspective, especially someone who, who's worked on the Republican side, what do you make of, of, of sort of the rhetoric this year? It's a dumpster fire, unrecognizable to people that have worked in politics for a long time and people that are voters and have been closely observing these things and the real political junkies out there. It's worrisome. The rhetoric 
it's worrisome. You have a candidate uh, for a leading party that has pivoted and is now attacking the process by which we elect presidents in this country. I, I have... Every day, I feel like we've hit a new low, and then the next day happens. Oh, yeah. I mean, at this point, is the strategy to, 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 to just think so low that people stay home on Election Day? I mean, what, what's, what do you think this, the communication strategy is in, behind the curtain that um, Trump... Well, they're different, right? Like, so if you think about Trump and the strategy that they're employing, I think that it's an absence of strategy. I think that people that are close to the process would tell you that even the uh, rejected, damaged, broke people that are have gone to work for Trump, because what you have to understand is people that have worked on campaigns uh, before, and particularly high-level presidential campaigns, none of them are going to go work for Donald Trump, even after he's the nominee. Um, it's uh, the people that are working for this enterprise uh, on the Trump campaign are people that have never worked on presidential campaigns. If they did, it was a very low level. Um, they're strategists that have been living on the fringes of the Republican Party. Um, his campaign is literally being run by a Breitbart CEO. Um, it's it's a fringe it's a fringe campaign and. The reality is that is being driven every day by the principle, by Trump himself. Um, and you have all these people that are running around trying to explain uh, what their strategy is when the reality is it doesn't exist. Alternatively, on the Clinton campaign and a bunch of people that I've worked with before and across the aisle with before, um, these people are professionals. They've run campaigns at the local, the state, and national level. They understand how to turn out voters. They understand what it, what it means to um, promote public policy solutions um, and present an argument to the American people that, in this case, I think is going to be the winning argument. And the juxtaposition between the strategies of these campaigns couldn't be more night and day, um, but there is, there is always this X factor, which is as much as it looks like Trump uh, will be uh, the loser on Election Day, environmental changes could happen between now and election day that could dramatically sway people from ever turning out. And there's an old saying with pollsters in politics, which is, you only have to win the voters who show up. So if, as you say, turnout is so low among certain constituencies that, that Clinton needs in target states, she could win all of them and not have enough to win. Um, and what uh, a friend of mine who runs campaigns across the country was telling me, you know, he was he was running a, a, a Senate campaign in a state where the lowest voter turnout ever for a primary was 74,000 voters. And this primary, only 51,000 voters showed up in that state. It was by far lower than, you know, 23,000 lower than had ever turned out in the state's history. Um, and that's really worrisome because if it comes down to who shows up, Trump has a lot of enthusiasm around his, his candidacy um, among the base, base voters, and it's really incumbent on Clinton to make sure her voters turn out. Because you, you refer to him as a fringe candidate, but it's a fringe candidate that as of just in August, it was a fairly tight race. I mean, up until just I think the last month, I would say, it had really started to tighten up, even in the battleground states. I, I think Clinton always sort of had, had the edge um, in the Electoral College, but, but I mean, this, the race ran tighter than people expected in, in the months after the con sort of convention bumps had worn off. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
you hear there used to be a lot of talk around the 50-50 nation, right? That it's that the margin between the two parties is very, very thin. Um, and so, but a four-point lead um, in a presidential campaign is a pretty significant lead, which is where I think the national polls stand now. Um, what's surprising is some states that Clinton is depending on, uh, she's, she's more narrow than she should be, right? Like, she's a point up in North Carolina. Um, but then there are these states where she should have no business being competitive, like Arizona. Or Texas, or yeah. Or Texas, where it looks like she has clear margin for victory. Um, and then it, sh- it throws the whole map off where it looks like, you know, I mean, it's going to be a landslide victory for Clinton, unless there's an X-factor environmental change that pushes her voters to stay home. And you continue to see the enthusiasm among this base-base electorate. Uh, that Trump is courting. What, what would be an example of an X-factor environmental factor that kept Clinton's base or, or her voters home? Um, I mean, I think you could see, like, a domestic terrorist attack. Some, not, like, we're talking about, like, pretty extreme things um, that would have to occur, and it would also have to occur in the right way where um, the status quo would be seen as, as the culprit. I mean, we saw this uh, in 2008 uh, with you know, the McCain-Obama race that I worked on, um, you know, in September, we had, you know, the biggest financial crisis uh, in, in nearly a century. And, you know, that's, that is, as, you know, our campaign manager famously said, there's been no more effective campaign mailer ever sent in the history of American politics mm-hmm. than people's retirement accounts when they showed up halved. Um, mm-hmm. Literally, people lost half their net worth in the span of a month. Um, and those are types of things that are just unrecoverable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, I I'm fearful that that there these types of that these types of factors exist um, because you know I like uh, a lot of uh, thinking um, uh, concerned Republicans think that we've nominated a candidate that's unacceptable. How did it get this far? I mean, because it's not like Trump was suddenly saying horrible things, you know, in the last six weeks or, or even, you know, more recently. From the start of the campaign, there were things that were being said that were hugely offensive. And, and I was actually just in a conversation with someone who, like yourself, um, has worked in politics for a long time and his and he, and on, the, on the Republican side. And, and he said, you know, it was unacceptable that the party didn't at this get-go realize what a train wreck this was going to be and say, look, you, we are not going to affiliate with you. You can run as an independent. You, you, you are not part of our party. Yeah, it's really difficult for the party apparatus to actually do that, right? So, yeah. you know, he's a registered Republican. Um, he threw his hat in the ring for the primary. I think the bigger problems and that eventually led to Trump's nomination are much more complicated. You had a crowded field and you didn't have a clear muscular front runner that could push others out of the race. And the example that I always go back to is, you have Jeb Bush who raises you know, $130 million uh, between his campaign and his super PAC, and he fails even at pushing out Marco Rubio, who his political mentee. Um, the person that he brought into politics, he wasn't even strong enough as a front runner to push him out. Um, the idea that he wasn't able to push out the likes of uh, Rand Paul and others until later stage. I mean, these are the types of candidates that get in uh, through the first debate. 
there's a clear front runner. They see more political capital in getting in line with the front runner and supporting the eventual nominee than carrying through to these debates. And you saw you saw candidates that, that weren't raising money, that had no discernible constituency, that continued to stay in the race clear till the bitter end. Um, and I think that you you compound the factor of the crowded field and the no clear establishment front runner with the idea that you know the media deserves some amount of attention around the way that they, and even Jeff Zucker, uh, the head of CNN this past week, admitted that it was a mistake to show these unfettered rallies for Trump because they're driving ratings. Everybody loves to watch a train wreck. And what was happening was you were allowing Trump to push this I am not establishment message through billions of dollars of earned media during the nominating process. And by the time uh, the press uh, came around to seriously betting this candidate. He was already the nominee. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't the later stages of the nominating process. Trump didn't see serious negative vetting coverage until he had already won the nomination. So, and let's go back to strategies for a second. And I want to ask you about the strategy that a lot of uh, Republican leaders are taking, where they won't defend Trump anymore, but they won't unendorse him. So, just give me your your take on on that on that approach. It's difficult. Um, it's difficult for these guys because they're focused on their main job. Their main job, if you're the Speaker of the House or you're the Senate Majority Leader, is to re-elect your caucus. You literally go raise money. You uh, counsel these candidates into trying to put their best foot forward and win their win their race. And this, it would, the same thing would be happening if it were the Democrats that had nominated an unacceptable candidate, which I do introduce as a possibility for the next time around for them. I mean, this is what you've seen as a new model of candidates. So, um, you know, any number of, of media celebrities that have political viewpoints um, could effectively position themselves as the outsider in an anti-establishment race and find traction. Um, what I think we've seen now is a schematic for trying to engage these people earlier. Um, and I think that's a whole side conversation, but if it were the Democrats, it would be the same thing. You're focused on reelecting your caucus and trying to win as many seats as possible. And that means you need to turn out your base. You need to turn out your voters. Um, and if you spent your time running against the party's nominee, uh, you, would, you would open up the possibility uh, that your voters don't turn out for your candidates um, and are painted with the this is a Paul Ryan Republican, this is a Mitch McConnell Republican. You, you start you start wasting and, and driving the wrong type of energy for your candidates that are down ballot. And so playing that playing that dance is really difficult. It's it's hard it's hard to blame these guys. Um, it's nice that we're seeing at this point that at least the party leadership is coming to the place where they're not defending this guy anymore. Um, and I know that there's been a lot of frustration um, among uh, Republicans inside the Beltway who have been doing this for a very long time that feel like maybe even a more muscular, um, uh, a more mu muscular opposition to Trump earlier in the process could have made it even easier for down-ticket candidates. But once you lost that initial edge, um, now you're having to dance, and it's it's difficult. Um, and the answers to this stuff aren't clear because th this is really uncharted territory for these guys. So I remember in 2012, after the um, Romney Ryan ticket lost, uh, 
the, as I think the general consensus was the GOP needs to become more inclusive if they want to win the presidency. Um, and then we ended up where we are today, where we have probably the most, yeah, divisive candidate, both you know nationally and also within the party. So where does where does the Republican Party go from here? And sort of you know after on November 9th, what happens? I, there are no clear answers for that. Um, you're looking at a situation where um, there needs to be an emergence of new leadership, um, and there also needs to be. Um, an effort put forward where the party turns the page on on this chapter that's played out here. Uh, I know that people are giving in a lot of thought, um, and again, there are these dissenting views. Some people in the party would have you believe that people that lose their party's nomination tend to fade away in terms of the national conversation, um, and there begins to naturally become new voices of leadership. Um, if, if the Republicans can hold on to leadership in the House or can control the House and can somehow maintain control of the Senate, you have natural oppositions to the White House in Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, and naturally they would have more airtime to promote a different type of Republican Party than what we've seen now. Um, but then I also think there are these other viewpoints which, which would advocate for a much more muscular approach on, on ridding the party of Trump um, and everything that Trump stood for in terms of, you know, the racist, misogynist, closed-minded rhetoric, uh, anti-trade, uh, anti-veteran, um, you know, you the list goes on, and having a full rejection of that. Um, and, and I think that, that everybody realizes that needs to happen. How that can happen most efficiently is, is an unanswered question at this point. So I, I know you have to go in a moment, Tucker, but one, one more question I have for you is you think about the, the, the young voters who are coming of age in this election cycle. Do you worry about the legacy of what being a Republican will mean for voters who are just now sort of tuning in? Yes. I think if you're a younger voter and this is your first election to participate in, or even think about the voters that are too young to participate, but this is their first impression of, of uh, the two parties, I think the Republicans are at a terrible disadvantage, and this has been um, a disaster that could carry forward. My only hope is um, that thinking, passionate, uh, articulate leadership will emerge, um, and that the winning issues that Republicans have traditionally owned uh, can come to the forefront, and we can capitalize those on those going forward. But it, there's a huge deficit that will result I think if, if there is a new leadership that comes to the party that's really persuasive, that's really charismatic, and understands what issues conservatives own and what issues they can win on and put those issues forward uh, in a way that strategically makes sense, if that doesn't happen, then I think that you'll move to a place where um, Democrats will, will enjoy even more uh, success in these presidential elections going forward. Thank you, Tucker. Yeah, Arthur, it was great. Thanks for having me. All right, so now for a slightly different perspective, but still from the GOP side, we'll welcome David Almasy to the show. David was 
Interim and E-Communications Director for the White House, so for the White House website, whitehouse.gov, from March 2005 to May 2007. So that was under the George W. Bush administration. Um, since then, he also was uh, VP at Wagner Edstrom, now, of course, We Communications, and also had a long stint at Edelman as an SVP there. Well, welcome to the show, David. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, no, it's great to have you. So if you if you could just remind our listeners sort of what your involvement in politics has been up until this point. Certainly. So I actually grew up in Washington, D.C., one of those rare people who um, you know lived here and actually stayed here after college, I went to college in um, in Pennsylvania at Widener University in Chester, and then moved back home uh, and worked uh, for the Republican National Committee for a while. Um, and actually, during college, I interned for the Bush Quayle administration. So that was really my first official job in politics. Um, but I worked in the RNC in the 92 cycle um, and then just remained involved. I worked at C-SPAN for about five years. And then I ended up uh, years later working at the Department of Education for President George W. Bush for uh, a bit of the first term for a couple of years. And then in the second term, I was the White House Internet Director uh, where I ran WhiteHouse.gov and was a spokesperson for Internet Press and bloggers back when we used to sort of section those off into separate categories. Um, and then left in 2007 and then went to work um, at Wagner Edstrom for a while and then at Edelman for uh, just over six years. Yeah, and I think the first time you and I spoke was actually in 2007. I think it was shortly, um, I think it was right before, I think you joined Wagner Edstrom. Um, yeah. So, uh, so David, I mean, gosh, I mean, what a draining, emotionally draining ride this 2016 election cycle has <laughs> been. I mean, we've never seen anything like this before. The rhetoric has been so unusual, I mean, divisive and, 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 and I mean, really just like insulting to so many groups. I don't even like I, when I was coming up with questions for you today, I was like, I'm not even sure where to begin. There's there's it's it started. It's been going on for so long and there's been so many comments. But I, I figure let's start with the third debate. Um, Trump says, I'll keep you in suspense when asked about whether he'll accept the election outcome. Right. What, what do you make of that? Well, um, well, first of all, from a communications perspective, it was a disaster, um, to use a phrase that, uh, Mr. Trump likes to use, um, because afterwards it's all anyone was talking about. You know, I think it, it one of the challenges in any campaign is focusing on the issues, right? What are the issues that currently face our country? And I think, you know, there are a number of them that we can spend a lot of time talking about. And what are the plans? What is it that, you know, that, that you plan to do? And there used to be in this country a pretty clear divide between the approach in terms of how we achieve results and overcome challenges that are facing us. The Democrats have one view and the Republicans would typically have another. And it seems that this cycle has been all about anything but that discussion. Um, and so last night was a prime example where, a, a, you know, it was typically a throwaway question. And it's not the first time the question's been asked, by the way. It was asked in a previous debate. And they both kind of said, yeah, yeah, we support it. But I think, you know, that, that it's because he's been saying on the campaign trail that the election's rigged. And a lot of people view that as, um, you know, kind of riling up his troops. Um, and so I think it was a completely fair question, but it was clearly aimed towards him because the perception is that he's going to lose. And so uh, it was Chris Wallace just basically saying, you know, hey, wh what's your take? Can I get you on record? And of course, you know, he what he probably should have said was, you know, 
contingent upon some sort of voting irregularity or you know something similar to what we saw in Florida during the 2000 campaign or whatever, of course, like you know the will of the people will be heard and I will respect it. But he didn't say that, and so that was the headline. And I watched a couple of different networks afterwards, um, CNN and Fox and MSNBC, to see what the commentators were saying. And they all, of course, that's all they focused on, uh, Republicans and Democrats alike. So unfortunately, he lost whatever sort of momentum he may have potentially gained in the first part of the debate, which he was actually doing pretty well in the beginning. Um, and that's all the conversation is now. I did see just a moment ago that actually he has now come out and said he will accept uh, whatever results come in. Um, there was a little news alert that popped up in my inbox a second ago. So um, he's been forced to basically backpedal on that. But man, he's lost a whole news cycle and all the morning drive time was a conversation about that very statement. So not a smart move. So given his numbers in the polls and, and, and to your point, David, I mean, based on sort of the, the post uh, debate reports, he likely didn't win many new voters last night. What do you think his strategy is at this point? Survive. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, look, at, at this point, it is Hillary Clinton's race to lose. Um, and what I find really fascinating is, you know, there are, you know, there's a clear divide in this country, to turn, you know, depending on, you know, what your political persuasion is. Uh, we all want what's best for this country. There are many people who are unhappy with uh, President Obama's performance and believe that Hillary will be an extension of that. Um, and then within the Republican Party as well, obviously, there is an active divide. I mean, this is something I've never seen before. I certainly have had candidates that have come through the party that and I've had people say to me, well, I'm not a huge fan of McCain or Romney or Palin or what have you, but I'll you know, hold my nose and I'll vote at the at the booth to kind of support the party. This cycle, though, we have people actively campaigning against our candidate. And I think people from, you know, uh, the Republican establishment, whether sitting members of Congress, including the Speaker of the House, uh, members of the Senate, the RNC, are torn because, you know, they want to maintain um, some sort of semblance of a party. But Trump has come in and really divided and created a rift that's going to be pretty difficult to heal even post-election. And so I think, you know, his strategy may be just to keep his name in the news. And I actually, I hate to say this, but I, I was actually thinking the other day, what happens when he loses? Like, I don't think he goes away. I think he becomes a pretty vocal antagonist to President Hillary Clinton in the same way that perhaps Rush Limbaugh was to President Bill Clinton, you know, constantly, you know, day after day, uh, Trump TV, Trump networks, you know, who knows what's going to pop up. But he will build a um, an empire around this, I fear, um, and will, which will only further his name and his brand and all of his companies and his products for, for years to come. So I think, you know, his goal is to stay in the news as long as he can and to basically pull together some states so that it's not a complete blowout on election night. I think it's going to be an early night. So let's go back to sort of, um, what you were saying about the party leadership being torn because many, um, many leaders in the Republican party have taken this tact of defending are basically saying they're not going to defend Trump, but also not unendorsing him. What do you think of this tact? And, and do you think there will be some fallout from it, um, assuming that Trump loses? Personally, I think there will. Um, but, you know, you have to keep in mind that, uh, you know, I was having this conversation with a friend the other day about the word compromise. You know, somewhere along the line, the word compromise became a dirty word in our country. And I don't understand why. You know, obviously, you have certain viewpoints within the party and certain agenda uh, issue items that you would like to achieve under any president or any leadership in Congress. 
Um, but the concept that you don't deliver a 100% victory on any issue is viewed as failure, which means that you then run the risk of becoming primaried, right? You'll have the Tea Party who will organize around you and your campaign, and they will try to generate uh, you know, awareness and money and, and raise money to defeat you. Uh, and we saw this with Eric Cantor from, from Virginia, obviously, the, the majority leader, a uh, very senior member of Congress, a very good guy, by the way. I have a lot of friends who worked for him, a lot of respect for him as a lawmaker and as a person. Um, but the people in Virginia felt he was not delivering what they wanted. Um, I also think this probably led to Speaker Boehner's um, retirement. You know, he'd been there for a while and and uh, probably didn't want to sit through the rest of this cycle. And so the rift within the party um, has been pretty strong. And I think as the the Trump supporters have, you know, obviously taken root in some of that, there are moderates like myself who look at that and say, listen, I couldn't even tell you where Donald Trump stands on half the issues. Um, and even if I did align 100% with him on issues, just his demeanor alone, I think sets a bad example for our country and our children. Um, so um, I think that, you know, lawmakers uh, and current members of Congress or those running for office who are Republicans are torn between wanting to support the party, uh, fighting for the principles and their beliefs uh, based upon what, what the party has, has you know, been, been known to be, um, and potentially supporting a person who runs antithetical to, any, to everything they believe. So it's it, it, it's a really difficult place to be in because if, if you're vocal against your party's candidate, you know, uh, you'll probably catch flack for that. But also if you don't speak up because you disagree with what he said, you'll catch flack for that. So there really is no easy answer. And by the way, the, the Democrats are kind of in a similar um, uh, position. You know, Hillary is not beloved either. And um, but at a much lesser degree, as has been my sense, I have a lot of friends who are Democrats, including my mother, for example, um, and I won't reveal her, her views personally without her permission, but I will say that, that those I've spoken with had said, listen, between the two of them, it's the lesser of two evils sort of thing, and at least she will bring in hopefully good people that she'll surround herself with, perhaps some from her husband's administration who did run the government fairly effectively uh, in the nineties. And, um, and maybe the, the country will be better off for it, despite the fact that they have some misgivings about her truthfulness and her character. Yeah. But, but I do think in terms of the, the democratic establishment being behind Hillary Clinton is, it's not the same as, as putting your support behind someone like Donald Trump, who, you know, like just, just, if we look at the most recent examples, the access Hollywood tapes, I mean, I mean, it, it's, it, I don't think there's something that's equal on the Clinton campaign side that the establishment has, um, in some ways, you know, condoned via silence. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would argue that, I mean, I agree with you, first of all, I would argue that the, you know, the WikiLeaks or the email controversy, um, or, you know, some of the potential, um, you know, um, organizational issues with the Clinton foundation and the conflict between her role as secretary of state and, uh, donations to the foundation. Some of those things definitely raise questions, but you're right. It's certainly not to the level of what we've seen with the sexual assault allegations and some of the other things that have come out recently about Mr. Trump. So let's go to how did we get to this point? I mean, it's, I mean, it's not like, like Trump's demeanor and, and words have been a surprise. Um, from the start of his campaign, he's been saying incredibly damaging and, and, and divisive. His rhetoric has been very damaging and, and, and divisive. So why wasn't there a swifter fallout? Like, why do you think that this communication style, this, um, why do you think it's worked? 
Well, I think, you know, within a certain section of the of the country, um, many Americans have felt a frustration with their government. And, and that's not uncommon. I mean, what, what's interesting is several years ago, my wife and I took our kids on a, on a road trip to Kansas City, which is where she's from. And we stopped off in Springfield, Illinois, um, and uh, to visit the the Lincoln Museum. And if if you haven't been there, it is one thousand percent worth visiting. It's a fascinating museum, and of course, Lincoln is revered. I would argue as one of our you know best presidents. I don't know many people who would probably disagree with that. Um, and you know, President Bush, uh, George W. Bush, used to always say, you know, there's a picture of Lincoln in in the Oval Office, and said that he would often glance upon that because. You know, he had the most difficult job of all, which is, of course, repairing a nation which was literally divided and fighting against itself. Um, But some of the comments that were uh, written about President Lincoln during Lincoln's time, like there's actually a whole room dedicated to this. And the political cartoons that were drawn were just brutal. I mean, it was it was actually kind of shocking because, of course, you know, we know we revere him today. But in the moment and at the time, he was despised. I mean, obviously, he was assassinated. So um, so clearly, um, you know, there was this divide in the country back then. And I think we like to almost put on some rose-colored glasses and think to ourselves, well, the country's never been this divided. And I always argue, well, of course it was. We were literally fighting against each other. You can't get more divided than that. So, um, so there are some repercussions of that years later of this, you know, of, of our political beliefs. And I think that, you know, some of the Trump uh, supporters – and we've seen some of the violence that has, you know, occurred in certain terms of fights and other sort of uh, f- physical altercations um, that have happened throughout the campaign um, is is a manifestation of the frustration that Congress isn't getting anything done and that and that the Republicans specifically have not done enough to stop things like Obamacare and other things that they disagree with within the Obama administration. And so um, it's almost a, a vote against the establishment. Um, you know, there, there's a sense that voters want to punish those Republicans who are currently seated in Congress for not doing a better job of advancing their agenda. And so basically, um, that, that has been a fairly major part of, of the, of the Republican voting bloc, And that's where the rift has occurred. Um, and so the question is, where do those people go after the election? Um, and where do people like myself and others, um, who view ourselves as more moderates, um, who don't agree with that approach and where do we go? Do we have a home in the Republican party? What does it look like? Or is the Republican party just taken over now? And this is what we're going to be dealing with, um, for the foreseeable future. So, um, so that's kind of where we are. I think debate is healthy. And of course we encourage people to debate. And I mentioned the, the value of compromise as well, but eventually, you know, we have to decide, what direction our country will be headed. And under a President Clinton, there will certainly be people who will rally behind a Republican uh, or a conservative principled approach um, to try to make sure that their views are also part of the discussion and that legislation can be passed accordingly. So the question is, what role will the party play in that? And, ha- and it will be weakened. And at what point will they be able to strong enough to, to basically fight back politically? So you mentioned a point about there is a sense among a lot of Americans, and we saw that um, in particular in the Republican voting bloc, but we saw it in the Democrat voting bloc this year as well, um, with this feeling that the American process has left them behind. What do you think needs to be done for people to, you know, to restore trust and confidence in the system? Well, I think, first of all, again, I mean, um, most people in, so I'm a bit of an optimist, right? So I believe that most people get into uh, public affairs or government 
with a with a heart for serving people. And this is what President George H.W. Bush used to say that, you know, uh, we, we need to put the public back in public service. You know, so pu pu public service is a is, is an honorable um, profession. Um, and I think that people are so pessimistic now. And quite frankly, the role that the media plays, you know, anyone who puts their name forward for nomination, it suddenly becomes a race for both the media and the opposition political party to dig up whatever dirt they can on a person to try to discredit them and tear themselves and their families down um, all for, for, for victory, not to mention the race for dollars uh, uh, as well. So um, I think until we can you know, come to the agreement that it's okay to disagree with people, it's okay to compromise, and that's quite frankly how as human beings we have um, been successful is because we do compromise. I would much rather, you know, get 50 or 60% of what I wanted versus zero. Um, and, and as the country continues to be more divided, uh, there's no moving towards the middle. And until that happens, um, I think we're going to be in a lot of the, the gridlock is going to be more divided than ever. Um, several years ago, I saw Norm Ornstein speak. He's a political commentator um, it was at a conference I was at and he talked about, um, that if you took the, if you took a football field and you sat in the sky suite of a, of, of a football field and you asked Congress to line up based upon where they viewed themselves politically. So you have the, those to the right of the, of the 50 yard line would be conservatives and those to the left would be, be liberals. And to the degree, you know, if, if you are a moderate, you'd be towards the middle. If you were extreme, you'd be all the way in the end zone. Um, so Basically, uh, he said, you know, when he first started covering Congress, you would see, you know, about 85 to 75 to 85 percent of Congress would be towards the middle and some sprinkled through the 25 and, and 10 yard line. He said today you would see most of them around the 10 yard lines and a bunch of them in the parking lots. So <laughs> so I think, you know, with with that sort of division, you know, it is it is impossible literally to get anything done. And so I think people look at that. And they say, well, Congress is not effective. Legislation is not passing. And then you have the media that loves to cover the, the divide. If you talk to people on Capitol Hill, though, the people who work uh, as staffers behind the scenes, they'll tell you that Congress actually works more often versus when it doesn't kind of thing. So, I mean, you know, there are certainly divides and serious differences on issues, but there are things that get done every day on a bipartisan basis that are never covered or never reported because it's not sensational. And so therefore, you have this reinforced you know, impression that Congress doesn't do anything, they're ineffective, that members of Congress are, you know, you see a lot of um, criticism and, and, and they're ridiculed for, uh, for silly things. And in some cases, it's earned. But in many cases, these are hard, dedicated, you know, public officials, and they're trying to do the right thing on behalf of their constituents every day. And I bet you for every negative story you can find, you could find five positive stories where they made a difference in someone's life back home. But we just don't hear about it. So you, you referenced sort of um, this identity crisis that the Republican Party might have moving forward. And, and I wanted to ask you, you know, after 2012, after, after the Republicans lost their, their bid for the White House um, that year, it, it seemed like the GOP was moving towards a more inclusive rhetoric. Um, it seemed like there was this consensus that if, if the Republicans wanted to win the White House again, um, you know, they needed to... to reach out to, to Latinos and, and women and, and other people of color in this country. And yet, and yet we had 2016. Um, what do you think the Republican Party needs to do to build, to rebuild relationships with some of these groups that, that have been um, insulted in this, in this last election cycle? 
I mean, remember after the last one, there was the famous after action report, right? And then there was the growth and opportunity project. Um, and you're right. There was, there was a concerted effort to not only reach people, but also to, uh, amend some of the party platform, uh, in terms of the positions on some of these issues that may be alienating to those groups. Uh, in addition, there was an effort to recruit different, uh, people who represented diverse backgrounds who also had conservative principles. And we see, you know, a number of those who have come through, you look at Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina, for example, um, first African-American elected United States Senator, a Senator from South Carolina. Um, you look at Nikki Haley, uh, you know, uh, a woman governor also from South Carolina. You look at Marco Rubio, Hispanic, Ben Sass, you know, uh, uh, young senator as well. So, you know, you're finding all these, you know, uh, Mia Love uh, is, is another one from out west, Elise Stefanik up in New York. I mean, uh, the youngest woman ever served, uh, ever elected to, to Congress. So you look at these people who represent a lot of diverse backgrounds, but are all Republicans and all um, support uh, uh, conservative principles and uh, and are attempting to uh, affect legislation and Congress in that way. And they're all amazing people who are doing incredible things. Um, so I think that there was an effort to say, okay, can we find, there are people out there who believe um, and, and align themselves politically with Republican principles. Um, and so, you know, if we look more like, uh, you know, the country, then, and, and we have people who represent these communities um, then that will help, uh, the, per help quell the perception that we are, we are otherwise. So, um, and that started, that started to happen and you're right. And then Donald Trump entered the picture and, um, basically hit reverse engine on that and started talking about things in ways that were offensive to, um, to many Republicans. Uh, you look at, there was a letter written a couple of weeks ago by 30 former, former members of Congress uh, who basically said, you know, to the RNC, stop spending money on the Trump campaign, focus on down ballot, because we're never going to make a difference if you invest in Donald Trump, because he is so offensive and we don't think he's fit to be president. Um, so therefore, we need to invest in, you know, in some of the people that I talked about earlier and others, the future generation, um, so that people will look at the Republican Party as um, as for, for what it is, as opposed to, unfortunately, our candidate, who is the antithesis of it. So, so you're right. I mean, it, you can't say one thing and then nominate someone who completely represents the opposite approach. Um, most thinking people, um, and I think Mr. Trump said after he won one of the particular primaries that he, that he was leading among the uneducated. And then he said, I love the uneducated. And so now, you know, the, the, the perception that that has, and people hear that it's, it's offensive on every level. And so, so you're right. It is, it is going to be very difficult to turn the tide um, and again, if Mr. Trump continues to, you know, um, um, you know, dominate media channels, even post-election, it will be difficult, if not impossible, for the Republican Party to sort of have a renewal. And I think change will probably need to happen outside the RNC as opposed to within. So let's let's try to end on on a somewhat positive note. Um, <laughs> there's there's a letter that that George H. W. Um, Bush, uh, the the forty first president, um, the United States wrote to Bill Clinton welcoming into welcoming him to the presidency. Um, yes. That's kind of making the rounds again on social media right now, and I think it speaks to this desire for a kind of a return of civility to, around our elections process. What do you think the next president, whoever that might be, can do to help us get there? 
That's a great question. I mean, I think, I mean, look, my, my personal take on, on secretary Clinton is that, you know, when I, I used to work at the education department and she was a sitting Senator at the time and she served on the health education and labor and pensions committee, which is the health committee. Um, and worked with her staff on a couple different projects. And quite frankly, they were great to work with. Her husband, you know, although he had some personal issues, you know, governed uh, during a fairly successful time for our economy. Of course, it coincided with the, you know, innovation of the internet, and <laughs> which was always helpful for commerce and a number of other uh, things. But at the same time, I mean, you know, if you look at where he governed from, he governed as a moderate, quite frankly, um, on a number of issues. And, and I think that's almost, I think what, what Hillary needs to do, I think she needs to reach out to the other party. And I think she needs to appoint people within her cabinet and within senior positions that are not just Democrats. Of course, she also has to cater to the Bernie Sanders part of her party. Um, and those, you know, cause obviously, you know, although Bernie is not a Democrat, he was an independent, but ran under the democratic, uh, uh primary process. Um, but I think she has to balance her cabinet with various viewpoints and quite frankly, taking a lesson from Abe Lincoln, he did the same thing, right? Team of Rivals, a very famous uh, book uh, about President Clinton's presidency. You know, he is noted for putting people who di who who were uh, uh, diametrically opposed to a lot of the things that President Lincoln wanted to do. But he recognized in order to repair the country, he had to have those voices represented um, in the advisor that surrounded him. And I think I think she needs to do the same thing. I don't think if if Trump were to win that he would do the same thing, um, and this and this is probably what scares a lot of us the most. Well, it'll be an interesting uh, next few weeks. It seems like anything can happen. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, in, I, I mean, I think I was looking on five thirty eight today, and I mean, I think the headline is yes, Hillary Clinton will probably win. Um, but when I was talking to Tucker Bounds, who who we who we also feature on this podcast, he said, you know, there's always that that X factor um, that for whatever reason could keep Clinton's voters home. And, um, and, and I suppose we, we, we still have to take that into consideration. Um, but, but also just, I mean, what, what will Trump say next? I think there's that question right. everybody's scanning the headlines for. Well, I mean, look, the challenge is that this is entertaining. Like even as a political person and I value public service and everything else, um, I, I watch the debates and, and I, because I, I'm waiting to be shocked by what comes out of his mouth and, and I'm never disappointed. And so <laughs> as a result, yeah. but that doesn't mean he needs to be president of or leader of the free world. Right. So this, this is, this is the problem. So you're right. There is a bit of an X factor, but I will go on record right now and I will say that she will win. And I think she will win with at least 55% of the vote. And I doubt he cracks 40. Yeah, I, yeah, I think most of the numbers are, are, are looking that way, David. Um, but but to your point about the entertainment factor and how we all—I mean, it's a train wreck that everybody you know can't look away from. I think that speaks to your point about how I don't think Trump is going away after November 9th. I think I think there's this appetite of for both his fans and also for people that are just continuously disgusted by him to just say, "Oh my gosh, how low is this guy going to go?" Right. Well, but at the same time, I mean, listen. Uh, I, I, to your question earlier about will there be a price to pay for those who didn't speak up sooner, there, we're already we're seeing it now. We're seeing the very beginning of that. And the question is, you know, you look at Rob Portman in Ohio. You know, fortunately, who is fantastic, by the way. I worked with him at the White House. He was the um, head of the Office of Management and Budget. 
uh, under President Bush. And, and he has been a great senator and he will continue to be a great senator. You know, he's up by at least 12 or 13 points last time I checked. And that was one of the races that Republicans were worried about that, you know, could there be some sort of Trump effect in a negative way? Would it pull people like Senator Portman down in the polls because of the things that, that Trump is doing. And so far, you know, it doesn't look like that that's affecting him. But other races, Kelly Ayotte and others, you know, it does look like it, it may have an effect. And so um, so I think, you know, that there, there's going to be a divide there. And um, and I think down the road, you know, someone will ask the question, what position did you take? Did you stand on principles or did you cave? You know, for the, did you put party above country and uh, and support Trump when you knew he was wrong? And um, and I think that there will be a political price to pay for that, both individually and as a party. Well, interesting times indeed. Well, thank you, David, for joining us today. Of course. Thank you, Ryder. I appreciate the invitation. It was always great to chat with you. And that concludes another episode of The Echo Chamber. I'd like to thank our guests, Tucker Bounds and David Almasy, for taking the time to join us today. I'd like to thank our production team, Marketers for DC, And I'd like to thank our podcast sponsor, March Communications, uh, who hosts their own podcast called Hacks and Flax. And if you haven't checked that out um, already, you you definitely should. Um, All right. Well, that's all for this time. And we'll see you here again in a few weeks with another hot topic. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers 4DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 